0: Everybody, and welcome to this Sunday school hour here at Faith Baptist Church. Let's take our Bibles to 2 Kings 18. A couple weeks ago, we started 2 Kings 18. We got through the first 16 verses of the chapter and uh, didn't have enough time to finish the rest of the lesson, so we decided to cut it in half. And then last week, we had coots. So this week, We're going to finish up chapter 18. We'll recap a little bit of what happened. Uh, Verses 1 through 8 sort of summarize the reign of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And from here on out, it's only kings of Judah because Israel went into captivity. We remember that from the week before this. Uh, Verse 3, we talked about the phrase, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and some of the things that he did. Uh, for example, he removed the high places, he cut down the groves. And then it said he broke in pieces the brass and serpent that Moses had made. Uh, and we talk, that was one of the questions from Cahoots last week as well. And we did talk a bit about that, uh, that they had taken something that God used to heal the people, something that Jesus would use in the New Testament to sort of reference himself. He hold the brass serpent up and he says, uh, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Right? Well, they've taken this brass and serpent because they were being bitten by fiery serpents and getting sick and dying. And the people in Hezekiah's day was taking it and was worshiping it. And we talked about that for a while. Uh, we talked about how he trusted in the Lord, how he claved to the Lord, and how the Lord was with him. We talked about secondly uh, last week was the invasion by Assyria, and how Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria, uh, came up against, it says, all the fenced cities of Judah, and took them. And uh, then Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent a message to the king of Assyria, saying, "I have offended. Return from me. That which thou puttest on me, will I bear." So Sennacherib comes into his backyard you know, steals all of his cities, takes them for himself, is conquering for no reason whatsoever, just coming in and taking what he wants. And Hezekiah sends a message to Sennacherib saying, you know what, I'm sorry. Clearly I've offended you in some way. You know, you murdering my people, taking my cities and my gold, clearly I've done something against you. And there's a a cowardice in that. And uh, we talked about last week about how God would have us to stand strong when we're standing on what's right to not apologize uh, for standing for what's right in the Lord. And uh, I I don't have time. I want to chase that rabbit again this week, but I don't have time. We're summarizing. Focused. Uh, And then it said how Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasure of the king's house. Continuing to just cave to this guy which brings us to point number 3 which is where we're picking up at this morning and it starts in verse 17 of 2 Kings chapter 18 Let's see Okay it says in verse 17 and the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshaka from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the Fuller's Field. But I had more time out of, maybe had a map of this drawn out so you can see exactly where they're at. But they're in Jerusalem. They're at the palace. um, And they're near Solomon's uh, pool. And when they had called to the king, there came out to him uh, Eliakim, uh, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Speak ye now to Hezekiah. Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Thou sayest, they are but vain words, I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Now behold, thou trustest upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt, on which if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, unto all that trust on him. Which is a, I guess, a play on words. But if you say unto me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away and hath said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? No, it wasn't. ever hear somebody talk about something they think they're an expert on and they just end up sounding like a complete idiot isn't it just the most frustrating thing in the world To, to watch somebody stand up and they're like oh i'm an expert on this let me tell you and every word out of their mouth is wrong and you're like i don't have enough time to tell you the many ways you're wrong that's what's happening here they're talking about the lord Aren't those the groves that you just cut down? Weren't those your God's groves? Wasn't that God's grove you just cut down? Those high places you destroyed? Wasn't that God's high places? Why would he still be helping you? You just destroyed all those places. See, I'm an expert. Twirl on my mustache. And it's like, it's not, it wasn't. Because what they did was destroy idol worship. Right? But he continues on. He says in verse 23, Now therefore I pray thee give pledges to my Lord, the king of Assyria, and I will deliver thee two thousand horses if thou be able to, on thy part, to set riders upon them. How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Am I now come up without the Lord? against this place to destroy it the Lord said to me go up against this land and destroy it so now he's claiming that, that the God of Israel told him to come up and take Israel the arrogance of this guy it just it's very frustrating to me and this was thousands of years ago and I'm still frustrated with him. you know why? because it's relatable it's what people do today And we're going to get into that. But like I said, thirdly was uh, the message of the king. This was what Sennacherib. this wasn't what his servants had to say. This was just the message they were sent with. So this is what the king of Assyria had to say to the king of Judah. He says in verse 19, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? And he talks about the different places that Hezekiah has tried to trust in to sort of save him from his situation. He says, Thou trustest upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt. So first of all, we're talking about Egypt. And how he sent uh, to So, king of Egypt, a message saying basically, help. And the king of Assyria found out about it. And he refers to Egypt as a bruised reed. Now, we know what a reed is, right? It's those things that grow up out of the water. And when he's talking about a bruised reed, he's talking about, you ever seen like um, one of those reeds sort of hanging down by a thread? More relatable here in Texas might be uh, like a tree. You walk past a tree, and it's got a twig, and that twig is just barely hanging on. And you know, at any minute, a good breeze comes through there, and it's going to fall right to the ground. Don't you have a a desire to go over to that little twig and just finish it off? Just kind of take it off? That's just human nature, isn't it? You want to go over there and just finish it off. Well, that's what he's calling Egypt. He's saying they're a bruised reed. They're just all it would take for me to go over there and just kind of take them out. That's all it would take. They're a bruised reed to me. He says uh, upon which if a man will lean it will go into his hand and pierce it in other words you're going to ask egypt for help but they're going to end up being the ones that hurt you instead of me he says i'm standing here negotiating i didn't come in and kill everybody i'm sitting here talking to you you go talk to egypt they're just going to kill everybody you don't stand a chance against me and he's sitting here i don't understand what makes you think you can fight me you don't have an army you don't have any friends uh, your God is actually helping me out, so he's not going to help you. Don't even bother. What we see in the king of Assyria is an analogy. Right? It's an analogy toward enemies. And we did touch on this a little bit a couple of weeks ago. But our enemies are not flesh and blood. And let me explain that to you. Because our enemies... Are the world not the people of the world but the system of the world right? the way the world naturally pushes against God and it's not most of the time it's not in a menacing way it's not even intentional I don't think most of the time it's just because the world is blind to the truth the devil has blinded them which brings us to our next enemy Satan and he does hate you And he does want to hurt you and he does have malice in his heart toward each and every one of us he wants your life destroyed and as far away from god as humanly possible he is your great enemy and then our third enemy is ourself what the bible refers to as our flesh and all that means is that part of you that wants to be a little selfish at times. You know, you, you kind of want to do the thing that you want to do and not necessarily the thing you know that you should do. And we all feel that. And that's the other thing we wrestle against. We wrestle against ourselves. I believe in psychology they call it the id, the ego, and the superego. Right? Uh, the Bible refers to it as uh, the flesh and the uh, the the will of the Lord. Right? They wrestle against each other. Paul has a very confusing phrase For he talks about, for that which I would do, I would not, but that which I would not do, I would. And you can almost hear, yeah, you can, you can almost hear the confusion, it's almost laughable in there, but it, it really resembles the struggle, right? It's almost like that sentence is wrestling with itself, and it pictures the wrestling that we do inside of our own flesh, right? That's what which I would do, I, I, I do, but that which I, I do, I would not do, and, and it almost feels like two parts of him are colliding, right? In that very sentence and that's what's happening within each and every one of us two parts of us are colliding I saw there's a commercial for a a new show that was coming on a few years ago I don't know what happened to it I don't even remember the name of it but on there was this guy and he said this thing that's like a rephrasing of a biblical term but I really liked it because it related uh, in my mind a lot better he said inside each and every one of us is two dogs the one that wins Is the one that you feed more, right? And that's what happens. If you feed your flesh more, it's going to win. Your spirituality will be too weak to win that wrestling match. But if you feed your soul and you tell your flesh, no, that's not right, we're not doing that, then your spirit will have the chance to win that fight. So these are our enemies, right? It's not uh, those people out there protesting Uh, the the victory we had over abortion this week it was a tremendous victory that's not politics abortion is murder that's all there is to it and that was a tremendous victory and there are people out there protesting that with signs and trying to get petitions uh, you know so that they can put it back through the legal system which isn't going to happen once the Supreme Court decides on something that's it But they're not our enemy. They may disagree with us. They may even hate us. We may even be their enemy. But we cannot make them our enemy in return. Right? And that's what the king of Assyria in here, he represents some spiritual enemies we fight. But make no mistake, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's what Ephesians 6 teaches us. Those people out there that hate us, those people out there that hate what we stand for, those people out there who protest against the Bible and against the things we stand for, those people are not our enemy. But the devil that's that's deceived them and tricked them and, and blinded them, he is our enemy. And we see a picture of such things here. Our enemies want us to believe that we are alone and friendless in the world. That's what our enemies want us to believe because there is a battle uh, strategy out there called divide and conquer. You've probably all heard of it before. You divide and conquer. So what does that mean? Well, it's pretty simple, and it means what the term says. You're fighting a foe who's got equal or greater forces than you. The only way for you to win is to separate them out, right? Make it a smaller force, you take that out, and then you take out the other smaller force. And you can do that if you divide them up and take little battles at a time, you can divide and conquer. That's what Joshua did when he came into the Promised Land. If you look at a map of his battle strategies and the way the Lord led them, he took what first? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho. What was the very next battle he fought? it It was Ai. Jericho and then Ai. If you look at a map of Israel from Jericho to Ai, splits the land of Israel right in half. He divided the north from the south. And he conquered the south first, and then he went and conquered the north. So divide and conquer is a great military strategy, and it works really well. It even works against us. Because the devil and he wants you to think that you are alone and friendless in this world. And then all the people in our lives would rather hurt us instead of help us. That's what he wants you to think. That's where he wants you to live. A family that's divided is a family where the devil wins. A family or a friend group that's separated apart is one that the devil will destroy. The devil does not want God's people to unite. That's bad news for him. So he divides and conquers. We must remember in those days where it feels like nobody cares about us, that one bad day does not mean that we are forever cursed to a lifetime without friendship and love. It's just a bad day. And it's possible you've had another recent bad day, but that doesn't mean they're all bad days. Do not give in to the despair that the devil wants you to feel. It's just a bad day. The Bible says in Proverbs seventeen seventeen, a friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Not in adversity, for adversity, and there's a difference. Because a brother, or a friend, that's so close that they're like a brother, is in your life for those moments of adversity for those moments where it feels like your back is against the wall and they can come in and they can say I got your back too a brother is born for adversity when somebody's going through hardship don't take a step back, take a step forward when you see somebody having a hard time don't give them space, give them encouragement when you see somebody struggling don't wait and see get your hands dirty get in there and help them out Somebody's stuck in the mud. Get in there and help him get out. Get out and help him push. Get him out of that mud. That's what a brother is for. Jesus was speaking, and one of his disciples came up, and he said, My Lord, your mother and brothers are here. And he said, Who is my mother, and who are my brethren? And he pointed out to the crowd of followers, and he said, Behold, my brethren. My brethren what he's saying here is that if we're part of God's people, we're part of the saved, born-again Christians that are going to one day enter in heaven, then we're brothers and sisters. We're family. And a brother is born, of adversity, born for adversity. He goes on to talk about another way of discouraging them. Uh, he tells Hezekiah, If you say unto me, We trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah have taken away, and hath said to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? And I talked about a second ago how absolutely frustrating that was to hear him talk like, Ho, oh, I've, I've proven them wrong. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. This is this thing that people do. And it's people who, mostly people who disagree with what the Bible has to say, or they don't have a good point against something that they know is right. They will, what my Bible college teacher used to say is they will build straw dummies and tear those down and say, look, see, I tore him down. You haven't torn him down. You tore down a straw dummy. Right, and that's what they do. That's what uh, Sennacherib is doing here. He's building up this straw dummy of an Israelite and he tears that down. He says, see, you've already lost the battle. Clearly, Sennacherib was ignorant of the God of Israel and where he was worshipped because this tyrant was trying to prove that God was not going to help them by pointing to the destruction of idolatry in Israel. It's a bad point to make if you're trying to say, see, God's not going to be on your side. You destroyed all the idols he hated what yes no that's a good thing what uh, what married woman wouldn't be delighted to find out that her husband went out of his way to stay faithful to her right i have a policy where unless your family we don't text i don't call you if you call me i direct you to amanda Right? I go out of my way to make sure that it is never suggested of me that I was in a situation I shouldn't have been. I think that's something every husband should do. This thing called faithfulness its not uh, as popular today as it should be. But God is the same way. God loved it that they went out of their way to destroy the idols, to destroy the things that Israel was worshiping instead of him, even the brass and serpent. You'd say, well, that seems a bit like a tragedy because it could have been, I don't know, set up like a museum sort of thing, or they showed to generations to come to say, look, this is the brass and serpent that that, uh, saved Israel in the days of Moses. How great is that? But the thing about it is it's just an object, right? That's not the thing that was special. It was just a piece of brass. It looked like a snake around a pole. That wasn't what was special. What was special was the God that performed a miracle. They looked at the brass and serpent. They were healed. It wasn't the serpent that did the healing. It was God. And they will always have God to look to. So often when people try to convince us that what we believe is wrong, their knowledge of what we actually believe is just as clearly wrong as Sennacheribs was. I've gotten into a few Facebook debates. I, I typically try not to get into debates because they really, it's like fencing. What's the point? Right? Thank you. Thank you. Because in fencing, the sword doesn't have a point. Yeah, never mind. Anyway. Debating is mostly pointless. Uh, every once in a while, I like to use it to sharpen my uh, intellectual skills so I know how to defend apologetically uh, the defense I have towards Scripture. Uh, but I've only done it a couple of times. And uh, one time was about alcohol, and the other time was about homosexuality. Now, I wasn't the one that started the debate. It was a friend of mine. She made a comment on Facebook that she posted on her page about I think it was when the, uh, the, they passed the law that said gay marriage was legal in the whole country. And a lot of us were upset about that. But she came out and said something in a like on her Facebook page, and then one of her, and then one of her friends, I guess, came on and sort of attacked her about it. And I won't, I'm not going to get into the details because it's not important. And uh, I don't want you to think that she was attacking homosexuals, because she wasn't. She very respectfully said what her opinion was, and she wasn't attacking anybody uh, in a pointed way or anything. But they were still offended and came on and attacked her, and I jumped in on her defense, and me and this other person got into it. And what they said was, uh, I took a class in college on a religion. So I'm pretty sure I understand everything that has to do with your faith that you could ever know. Because they had no idea who I was. Right? They were like, I took a class in college, and you're just some hillbilly from the sticks who just like raised up in church and owns you know, a couple of Bibles, and you think you know how the world works. And I commented back, and I said, well, I have a bachelor's degree in biblical studies, but that doesn't mean we can't be respectful to each other. Right? Because that's the problem is when somebody wants to make you feel foolish, they're going to try to act like they've got the upper hand. I heard him say one time if anybody ever thinks they've got the if anybody ever thinks they have the upper hand, break it. Right? That's the rule. Not literally break somebody's hand, don't do that, but I'll see me in a lawsuit later. Well, Pastor Strange told me to break their hand. I don't know. <laughs> don't do that. What I mean is, don't let them have the upper hand, right? Because we have the authority of Scripture. Look, you can have more degrees than a thermometer, or you could never step foot in a college your entire life. All you need is the authority of Scripture, right? This book has founded entire civilizations, right? It's been the bedrock of many civilizations. This book is thousands of years old. In this book, is all you'll ever need. This book has has done more for society than anything else ever will. So many of a civilization's laws are based out of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. You stand uh, as a witness in a court case and you lie under oath. That's illegal. You're going to go to jail for that. Right? So a lot of laws are based off of biblical principle. They try to convince us of what we believe is wrong with a false or slanted knowledge. Uh, anybody ever remember the, uh, the movie that came out? It's based on a book. Um, I'm trying to remember what it was called. The Da Vinci Code. Anybody remember The Da Vinci Code? Well, in The Da Vinci Code, it explains how there were certain gospels that were just Chose that people chose not to allow into the scriptures. They chose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because those were the four that they liked. And all the other ones that Mary Magdalene wrote one and they chose not to use that, right? And then uh, Judas Iscariot, the Judas that betrayed Jesus, went out hung himself and died, he wrote one and they didn't use it. I can't imagine why. Right? And all these other gospels that they just chose not to use. Because in those gospels... And the movie goes on to say in those Gospels, really, Jesus and Mary had a child together. And there's a secret code that tells you the bloodline. That's blasphemy, folks. That's blasphemy to the highest degree. Lord Jesus was the purest person that ever lived, and they're still attacking the content of his character. They're trying to create things that he did thousands of years after the fact. I love how in, in history the further we get away from an event, it seems like the more knowledgeable we get about it, right? Because it's like, oh, now we're finding out that Washington did this, this, and this horrible thing. it's like, it's amazing to me that it took us 2,000 years to get further away from Washington to find out that that happened. And we couldn't find that out, you know, when it happened or a few years afterwards, but it's, oh, it's hundreds of years later that we find out. I said Washington and thousands. I realized that. I got caught up in Moses. Leave me alone. Don't comment on it. <laughs> I met hundreds. But uh, they blasphemed God in that movie. And uh, the thing about those Gnostic... Go- the, the thing about those Gospels we chose not to use is that's the slanted argument of Sennacherib, right? Because it wasn't Gospels that the Catholic Church chose not to use because the Catholic Church did not choose the canon of Scripture. They just twist that piece of history and try to claim it for themselves. It was the apostles that put together the canon of Scripture, not the Catholic Church. In each and every one of the books in the New Testament, you can see where an apostle authorized that portion of Scripture. And every book of the New Testament is authorized at some portion of Scripture, in the, every portion of Old Testament Scripture is authorized by an apostle at some point in the New Testament. It's the apostles that put together the canon scripture, not the Catholic Church, and the gospels that they're talking about that weren't used are called Gnostic gospels. And they weren't actually written by those people. Mary Magdalene did not write the gospel according to Mary Magdalene, right? Judas Iscariot did not write the gospel according to Judas Iscariot, but even if he did, is that really the one you wanna go with? Right? The guy that betrayed Jesus, sold him for 30 pieces of silver, went out and hung himself. The rope broke. He fell off 100 feet and his bowels gushed asunder. That's not the one I want to read, you know? But he, even so, he didn't write it. Right? These were written hundreds of years after the fact because people saw how popular Christianity was becoming and they're trying to make a buck. Right? It's funny because my dad was talking about this just before uh, breakfast today. Sitting down, he said, talking about, they talk about cavemen. And, you know, how thousands of years ago, cavemen this and cavemen that, cavemen weren't actually real. I don't have time to go into that. But then they talk about how these cavemen, you know, had these drawings and stuff, and my dad said, well, wrote a paper to his professor and said, well, what if, you know, a million years from now, somebody unearths a refrigerator? And I thought this was very clever. And a refrigerator has on it, you know, all the, the colorings and, and the, the work that the children have done, right? And they did all these little colors and, you know, drawings and tried to write these words, but they, they weren't very well written because they're like four or whatever. And the, But the millions of years from now people unearth it and they say, wow, look at how basic these these ancient people were. I think this was the, the greatest way of their drawings possible, and they completely misconstrue what happened altogether, which is probably what's happening with these cave drawings. You know, uh, he also said uh, like a carnival. They would unearth a carnival, be like, "Wow, look at how these people lived! Very flamboyant people, evidently." Think, professor. I know. <laughs> uh, a Sennacherib Right? I can't refute it, but I don't like it. So, yeah. It's a slanted argument that they do toward what we believe. But they're not right. And that's what we have to remember. The Bible says, Let God be true and every man a liar. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I hope that each and every one of us are ready to defend what we believe. I hope that. I hope you people watching on Facebook this morning that you are ready to defend what you believe. And if you're not, I hope we can give you the resources to learn how to defend what you believe. The Bible also says uh, he told them to give pledges to, quote, my Lord, the King of Assyria, in verse 23. Make pledges to me. Make pledges to the King of Assyria. Give yourselves to me. He says, I will deliver thee 2,000 horses. How great a deal this seemed to be! No more war. Right, 2,000 horses to put warriors on to defend their country. But a deal with the enemy always comes at a higher price than you realize. It always does. The enemy will always make surrender seem so tempting. But you've got to remember that sin will take you farther than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. That's what sin will do. He also says, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them, if you've got 2,000 warriors even left to stand. Another really effective tactic that the enemy uses is to make you feel too small and insignificant to really have a chance at victory. He comes in there and he says, look, little fella, look. I'm so much larger than you. I'm so much more powerful than you. Uh, I've been doing this a while. Look at all of my victories, the trophies on my wall. Look at all of this. Little fella, what chance do you have really? Just, Just, I'm here for you. Right, you don't don't bother. Just don't bother. Just give me what I want and go where I tell you to. Because I'm your master now. Right? You have no chance against me. I will crush you. Last chance. And they try to make you feel small and insignificant and unimportant so that you feel as though you have no chance. That's the way the devil wants you to feel. He wants you to feel tiny. He wants you to feel ignored. He wants you to feel like nothing you've done has mattered. That's the way the devil wants you to feel, but it is not the way it has to be. It was a little boy with a slingshot who took down the Phil- the Philistines' mightiest giant. Right? it was Samson who wasn't much to look at, according to Scripture, that destroyed more Philistines than any man ever in his life and then doubled down on that in his death. It's the foolish and the weak that God takes and makes them mighty and wise and uses them to confound the strong and the wise of this world. You are stronger and wiser than the enemy wants you to know. Makes me think of A Bug's Life. Anybody ever remember that movie, A Bug's Life? Grasshoppers come in and they start eating all the food and beating up on the ants. There's not enough food. We're gonna come back when the last leaf falls and we're gonna take everything. And they come back and they start beating up on people And that one ant, was his name Flick? I think. And he comes in and he stands up to the big grasshopper and he says, you need us to provide food for you, right? And he says, so who's the weaker species? He says, ants don't serve grasshoppers. It's you who need us. And he realizes that there's a lot more ants than there are grasshoppers. And they all sort of grab arms and start chasing after the grasshoppers. It's a really cool moment. I love that movie. That's exactly the way the devil does us. He wants you to never realize how strong you actually are. Because when you do, there goes his way of life. 2 Corinthians twelve nine says, He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weaknesses. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. The devil is out to discourage you. He's out to destroy you emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Do not let him win. And we see fourthly and finally is the discouragement of Rabshakeh. In verse 26, it says, Then said Eliakim, the son of Hilkah, and Shebna and Joah, Unto Rabshakeh, speak, I pray thee, to thy servants in the Syrian language. For we, understood, for we understand it, and talk not with us in the Jews' language, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. Right? Didn't want him getting discouraged. But Rabshakeh said unto them, Hath my master sent me to thy master, and to thee, to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men which sit on the wall, that they may eat their own dung and shall drink their own piss with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and spake, saying, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and then eat ye every man of his own vine, and every one his own f- his fig tree, and drink every one the waters of his cistern. Until verse thirty-two, until I take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of oil, a land of oil, olive and of honey, that you may live and not die, and hearken not unto Hezekiah when he persuadeth you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Have any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and of Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim and Hinnah and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who were they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand? that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of mine hand. But the people held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was saying, Answer him not. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Mm -hmm. which was over the household of Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent, and told him, The words of Rabshakeh. Very quickly, we saw the phrase, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. The enemy does not have to convince you that he's right. Folks, I need you to understand that. The enemy does not have to convince you that the enemy is right. All he has to do is plant a seed of doubt, and he's won. Never doubt for a second that God is stronger than your enemy and is able to give you victory. John 16, says, These things have I spoken unto you, that ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus has already gained the victory for us. He's already won all we have to do is receive it. That's not the end of troubles in our life. It's just the end of a peacelessness, a calm in the midst of the storm. And it also says in verse thirty-six, the people held their peace. That's significant. He, he we heard what he said. He was just respectful. He was scary. Right? Surely somebody would have something to say, but the people held their peace. Why? Because Hezekiah told them to. Sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is say nothing at all. And sometimes it's the most difficult thing to do. But saying nothing at all can be quite a bit more powerful than saying a thousand words. And then it also says, Then came Eliakim to Hezekiah with their clothes rent. These were faithless and defeated messengers with their clothes rent, sure that they were going to feel a defeat here. They were going to lose. They were going to die. They were scared and they were doubting and they were in terror. But much like the ten spies that came before the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea, if they had listened to the two good spies, they would have been able to enter into the promised land. In closing this morning, Victory in the Christian life requires faith. Even in the face of tragedy and the courage to face the enemy and the power of the Lord. Victory requires faith and courage. That's all we have time for this morning. We will be back at 11 o'clock. Thank you.